This is the Core Life Podcast with Jeff Olson. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you for checking out the Core Life Training Podcast. This is the preseason episode number six. And in this episode, our guest MC is a dude named Kit Wagner. This is a great guy that I've known for a long time. This guy loves Jesus. He loves the Bible, loves his family. Uh, he rides a bike to work, and he paints wargaming miniatures. Now, I don't know if he would say that's his claim to fame, but I think it's something that's pretty tight. So if you're a wargamer and you need some miniatures painted, this is your dude. I'll leave a link to his work in the description of the episode, and you can check him out there. So before we get into the episode, I want to take a second and thank you so much for downloading and listening to the Core Life Training Podcast. This week, we just hit over 200 downloads. And I'm not into it for the stats like that, but it is actually kind of nice to to look and see that uh, several of you, many of you have taken the time to download and, and listen to what we're doing. So I, I appreciate that a ton. It means a lot to me. Thank you so much for doing that. All right. So in this episode, I'm going to give you session two of the Core Life Training class, the story of the Old Testament. And in this session, we look at the importance of structure when you're trying to understand the message of an author. So what's at the beginning of an author's work? What's in the middle? What's at the end? Uh, how does the author arrange his material? How does he use different genres of literature uh, back to back in order to communicate his main idea? And in this case, we're going to look specifically at how the author of the Pentateuch uses a unique structure in Genesis chapter 1 to 9 to communicate the main ideas of the story of Genesis. In the next episode, I want to show you how the author of the Pentateuch uses that same unique structure to communicate the main idea of like the entire Pentateuch. So what is the story of the first five books of the Bible? I'm going to show you how the author tells you the story through the structure of his work. And uh, I don't want to give it away here, but I guarantee you the story of the Pentateuch is not what you think it is. So you want to come back and check out that episode as well. Okay, enough introduction, right? So why don't you grab a Bible, a notebook, and your drink of choice, and let's get down to business. Let's start with uh, the story of the law. And by the law, I mean the first five books of the Bible, the section of the Bible called the law. Right? What is the story of that first section? One of the ways you can understand an author's message is by looking at the structure of their story or the structure of their work. Um, and you'll see throughout this whole class, we'll spend a ton of time on looking at structure, how books are built, right? like what section comes after what and how these things are put together. Uh, because it really communicates an author's, part of an author's message. So if you look at the structure of the Pentateuch, oops, come back to me. If you look at the structure of the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch is another name for the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Penta means five, tuch has to do with scrolls. So if I say the word Pentateuch, I just mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If I say the law, I mean that. If I say the Torah, I mean that, right? Um, if, if you're reading through, you can kind of get the idea uh, just by paying close attention that the author has put together his book by arranging a section of narrative literature, like a story or some stories. And then in the middle of the story, there will be a poem. He'll just pop a poem right in, right in the story. And then there will be a little narrative epilogue at the end, a little like wrap up of the story. Okay, so uh, narrative, poetry, epilogue is the way these books, or this book, is put together. And I'll show it to you here. 
how it works in Genesis 1 to 9. So the, the early chapters of Genesis, this is super clear. I'll show you a chart, and then we'll kind of skim through our Bibles here. Uh, if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, that's mostly narrative literature, right? It's mostly a story. And then you hit Genesis 2.23, and there's a little poem. And if you look in your English Bible, it may, 2.23 might even be indented a little bit weird compared to the rest of the text. If you're looking on like an iPad or an iPhone, it probably won't look that way. But in an actual Bible, it's probably indented a little bit. That's to tell you that this is a piece of Hebrew poetry. Okay? And Hebrew poetry has uh, its own kinds of uh, characteristics. So like it, it's clear what a poem is and what it isn't. Uh, so you're not just making up, oh, that, I think that might be a poem. Like, it's actually really clear what a poem is and isn't. Uh, and then 2.24 is a little narrative. Uh, 24 and 25, actually, are a little narrative epilogue. Okay? It kind of wraps the story up. Uh, 3, 1 to 13, mostly story. And then 3, 14 to 19, you can see probably, again, it's indented a little bit, and that's Hebrew poetry. And then 20 to 24, the end of chapter 3, is a little epilogue. Uh, chapter 4, 1 to 22, is mostly story. Verse 23 and 24 are a poem. And then verse 25 and 26. So my chart's a little wrong here. 25 and 26 are the epilogue. And then you have a big section of narrative. Chapter 5 all the way through Genesis chapter 9. This is like the Noah, the story of Noah and the flood and all that. that that's this whole story. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 25 to 27 is a little poem. And then 28 and 29 are the narrative epilogue. Okay? So if you, if you kind of tagged along in your Bible, you could see those, narrative, those poetry sections were all indented. Right? So this is how the author has put together Genesis 1 to 9. And what's important to notice about these poems uh, is they, they serve like a really important function in the, in the text. Like the author's trying to do something with them. They're there on purpose. So one reason they're there is to catch our attention. Right? So you're reading a story, and you're reading a story, and you're reading a story, and all of a sudden there's a poem in the middle of your story. Right? Like you're supposed to go, hey, what, what's a poem doing in the middle of my story here? Uh, that's good. The author wants you to go, what is a poem doing in the middle of my story? Um, and the other thing is poems... What, what they do in the story is they thematize the story. Um, they, they tell you what's most important in the story at that point. They're, they're like uh, uh, songs in musicals. So whenever you're watching a musical and a guy and a girl are in a grocery store and they're just going on talking about their relationship or something like that, and then all of a sudden everybody in the grocery store starts to sing and dance. And they all know the words and they all know the dance. That song thematizes what's happening in the story. It tells you what's most important in the story. I was, I was thinking on the way over today, I was thinking you know, of, some ex of some examples. And one that came to my mind was from the Jungle Book, from Disney's Jungle Book. And uh, it's when uh, Mowgli and uh, Baloo. Mowgli and Baloo are singing the Bare Necessities, right? Um, it's just a kind of zippy little song and all like that. But it serves an important function in the story. Because right at that point, there's a conflict between Baloo and Bagheera about how to be responsible here and what we should do with this boy, right? And Bagheera, Bagheera is saying, we've got to be responsible with this boy. Uh, we've got to be smart and keep him safe. And Baloo's saying, oh, no way, man. You don't, you don't need all that. We can just go for it. And what, Mowgli picks Baloo, and they go out. And the song is the bare necessities. That's all you need, man. You, just, you don't need much, just the bare necessities. So that song thematizes what's happening in the story. And these poems do the same thing, right? They, they tell you what's most important in the text.
So if we would take a peek inside each of these poems, you'll get a real clear sense of what the author wants to highlight in these texts. So let's, take, let's just take a quick look at each of these poems. Um, Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation story and then the creation of the man and the woman. And the Lord uh, brings all the animals to the man and to find a helper for him that's suitable. And the word suitable, suitable means corresponds to him, right? One that's a match. So the Lord brings the rhino to the man and he goes, no, nope, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about, right? He brings the <laughs> lenny. <laughs> <laughs> right, he brings the, brings the alligator along and the man's just like, no, I'm definitely not talking about that. So the Lord puts the man to sleep, takes a rib out, and he fashions a woman out of the rib, and he brings the woman to the man, and then there's a poem. It's 223 is the poem. So the man sees the woman and says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. Here, the man and the woman, is, they've made a connection. Like, now Adam has seen his match, the one that corresponds to him. Now, what's the, what's the theology of this poem? I had a professor. He, he taught me, uh, he called those poems, the, uh, the poems HDT, not HDTV, HDT, heavy-duty theology, right? All the important theologies in these poems. So what's the, what's the heavy-duty theology of the poem here in this story about the man and the woman. What kind of relationship is this? Is this just a dude and a chick hooking up, having a good time? Is this just a uh, friends with a uh, sexual relationship on the side that's really relatively non-committal? Uh, what, what kind of relationship is this? Bond. It's, it's a bond, right? It's a, you were created from me and you match me. And then Moses interprets the relationship in the very next verse, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And it always goes in that order, right? You grow up, you get a job, right? You move out of mommy and daddy's house. Uh, you find a woman, and you make a promise to her with your whole life, and it involves a dress and a ring and a cake and, and all like that. And then you, you become one flesh in that order. All, that's, the, that's the right way to, to make that work. So this is a marriage. What's the heavy-duty theology of that poem? This, and if you've never read the Bible before, it's just, a, there's a man and a woman. What's this all about, right? You come to 223 and 24, you find out this is a marriage. God's created this man and woman for a thing called marriage, for a very important relationship. Uh, what about chapter 3? Chapter 3 is the fall of man, right? So Adam and Eve uh, do the wrong thing. That gets real gnarly. And ultimately, the Lord in this poem, the Lord it's, brings the curse Oh, I'm, I'm skipping important pictures here. So, 223 is a poem about marriage. Pretty good, right? You like that? I like that. Uh, chapter 3, 14 and 19 is about the curse. So he says to the serpent, curse it are you. Uh, and you'll crawl around on your belly and all that stuff. And your offspring will come against the offspring of the woman and you'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. So the serpent's Curse ultimately is going to end in a crushing defeat, right? Uh, we'll come to that crushing defeat later on in, in the story. Uh, to the man, what, is, what does he say? Cursed is the ground because of you. So the Lord had said, all, all these trees are good for you. You can eat from any of them. And was that supposed to be hard or easy? Easy. 
right? Just go to the tree, eat it. Just this one over here, just don't mess with this one. It's not good for you, right? All these are good. It was supposed to be very easy. And now the Lord says, this is going to be hard. You're going to toil and you're going to sweat and you're going to labor and there's going to be thorns and thistles and that's how you're going to get your food, right? And at the end of all of it, at the end of all of it, you're going to die and go back to the dust. So what was meant to be easy becomes real hard. And uh, the woman, that's not a, that's not meant to be a puffy dress for the woman. She's supposed to be pregnant. So the curse on the woman is, I'll increase your pain in childbearing. So childbearing was supposed to be easy, not hard at all, right? And so I'm going to increase your pain in childbearing. And uh, then the other part of the curse is, he says, uh, your desire will be for your husband, but he'll rule over you. Now, it's a really important word, your desire, what kind of desire for your husband will you have? Um, it's not romantic desire, it's not like that. Uh, it's the same word for desire that's in chapter 4, verse 7. Cain is mad because God accepted Abel's offering and not his. Right? Abel brings an offering from the flock, and Cain brings an offering from the ground, and God accepts Abel's offering and not Cain's. And Cain's mad about it. Now, why does, why does God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Is he just being arbitrary? I just happen to like flocks more than vegetables. Like, what's, what gives? It, back in chapter 3 in the poem, the Lord said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Should you bring an offering from the cursed ground? Ground's cursed. Hey, Lord, no, no sweat. <laughs> Here, here's an offering. Probably not, right? So Cain brings an offering from the cursed ground. Cain says, I don't care if the ground's cursed. I'm going to bring an offering anyway. And he doesn't like it. And so, you know, obviously later on he goes and he kills his brother. But he's mad, and the Lord talks to him in uh, verse 6. He says, that, uh, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? Like, why do you look bent out of shape? Right, you look bent out of shape. What's your problem? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Right, if you do the right thing, you'll look great and feel great and everything will be fine. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at, your, at the door and its desire is for you. What's sin's desire for Cain? Is it romantic? No. Sin's desire is to control, right? Sin wants to own you. But you must, what, what does the text say? But you must master it. So now Cain has this conflict here, right? Sin wants to control you, but you've got to fight and master it. That's the exact same word for desire back in Genesis 3. Uh, to the woman, he says, your desire will be for your husband. Now all of a sudden, you're going to want to be the boss of everything. You're going to want to run his world, right? But now he's going to rule over you. So what was meant to be an easy relationship is now tricky and difficult and hard, right? And if we've ever been married in a relationship, yeah. Um, when you said that, you know, the ground was cursed and that, well, they didn't have the Old Testament. Were they, was that just passed down? Or how did they, how yeah. were they made aware? I mean, this is years later, generations later. Uh, nope. Cain is Adam and Eve's son. Yeah. Um, you know, how was it passed on to them to know? Right. So you remember when the Lord said to Adam, all these trees are good for you and one's not good for you? Eve wasn't even created yet in the story. She's not around. Okay. So the implication is Adam was supposed to lead her in that. He was supposed to... What's that? Yeah, Adam was supposed to sort of hip her to that. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, hey, by the way, Eve, we're not supposed to do that. 
I, w I would say the, the same thing, that Adam was responsible to teach his children what's what here. Now, uh, Abel seems to have got the message just fine. Right? He, he brings an offering from the flock. Uh, Cain either didn't get the message, or I think the way the text portrays Cain, he is a hard-hearted man. So he, that, that's the way he's portrayed. So I, I would probably interpret it. Cain is saying, I don't care. I'm going to do my own thing. But that was my question. Cain was the worker of the ground. Right. And Oh yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So the Lord's problem is not Cain, you're working the ground, you idiot, right? That's not his problem, right? In fact, in in Genesis three, the assumption is you are going to work the ground. It's just going to be hard now. So no problem working the ground. What's the problem that the Lord has in chapter four? It's the offering. Don't, so what, what should Cain have done? Uh, I don't know. Maybe traded Abel some carrots, some carrots for a sheep. I don't know. Some <laughs> Lynn, Lynn, you're feeling this tonight, bro. <laughs> I love it. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? So, so yeah, I, this is, you know, Adam, this is Adam's son, and he, he's responsible to teach him this stuff. And uh, one way, shape, or form, Cain doesn't get the message. So in chapter 3 here, when the Lord says to the woman, your desire is for your husband, he'll rule over you. What he's saying is there's going to be a conflict about who's the boss, right? I want my way. No, I want my way. No, I want my way. No, I want my way. Let's get divorced, right? That's just how that goes. I want my way. No, I want my way. I want my way. No, I want my way. Okay, that's fine. Then I'm going to go sleep on the couch, right? Like you just pick your, pick your end version of I want my way. No, I want my way, right? We all handle the end of that argument our own ways. But that's the heart of it. And it's right there. That's part of the curse. What's the heavy-duty theology? It's, man, all these, all these things that were God meant to be a blessing and he meant to be easy are now hard, are now real difficult. Um, if you look at Genesis 4, this is the Cain and Abel narrative. We just talked about that. And uh, Cain kills Abel. And then by the end of chapter 4, you come across this guy named Lamech. And he's Cain's, like, great-great-great-great-great-grandson. Okay, so he comes from a line of murderers. Right, that's his family history. And when you come to verse 17, 18, 19, there's a little genealogy of Cain's family. And then you come to verse 19. And you meet this guy named Lamech. <clears throat> it says, Lamech took to himself two wives. Is that a problem? Yeah. No. From the text... Not from experience or from, just from the text, why is that a problem? So you've only read Genesis 1 to 4. How do you know that's a big, big time problem? Man will leave his father and mother and cling to his what? Wives. Wives. Look at the text. It says wives. As many as you like. She's hot, she's hot, she's hot. Have all three. Right? Genesis 2, 24 and 25? Wrong. It says, to his wife, singular. So when, in that poem, right, the theology, when God said this relationship is about a marriage, that's a one man, one woman mar marriage. It's not one man and four women. Or 700 plus 300, like Solomon later, when we talk about Solomon. Right? So uh, 
you're only three or four chapters in, and all the, you already know, because you've read these poems, right? You already know, Lamech's a bad guy. Right? This is a bad guy already. So, big problem. Lamech took for himself two wives. One was, one was named Ada, and the, other, the other's name was Zillah. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 23, here's the poem. Lamech said to his wives, now he sings a little song, right? In the musical, this is the song part. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. Right? So he calls them together and he's about to make a big announcement. For I have killed a man for wounding me. Uh, the, the text here is br- for, for bruising me. Right? I've, I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Now the man and boy are in parallel in this poem, so it's the same person. He didn't kill a man and a boy, right? It's one person that he killed. So he obviously killed a young person for not hurting him very much, for bruising me. You bruise me, little boy, I'll kill you. Is that a problem? Seems like an overreaction, right? Little over the top there, Lamech. So he's got two wives, and he's a great-great-great-great-grandson of a murderer, and now he is, what, bragging? And now look at the next, the next verse here. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, you remember the Lord said, man, if anybody kills Cain, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of them. Because God doesn't want people just taking revenge, and we're not going to do this murder thing. Like, that's not how we're doing this, right? The Lord said, Cain, you did the wrong thing. Now, if anybody kills Cain, I'm going to take care of business, because that's not how we're doing it. So Lamech says, well, look, if Cain is avenged seven, uh, sevenfold, then Lamech will be avenged 70, 77-fold. That seems a little presumptuous, right? Hey, I killed, a, I killed a young man for bruising me. I went way over the top and killed him for bruising me, and God's on my team. And if anybody doesn't like it, just you're going to have to deal with God. Uh, so what is this, what's the theology of this poem? Um, we, we started with like zero evil at the beginning of the story, and then a, little, then a little evil came in with Adam and Eve, and then Cain kills Abel, and that's the first murder. And you only are one chapter later, and a guy's murdering a young man for no reason, bragging about it and presuming the Lord's on his team. Uh, Obviously, this poem just indicates that the increase of evil in the world is pretty steep. And in fact, if you just turn the page, you come to Genesis 5 and 6, and that's the flood narrative. The Lord's like, look, this is getting way out of hand, right? This is gnarly. All right, then you go through the flood narrative. You go through chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and this is the Noah narrative. It's the flood. And at the end of the flood, Noah plants a vineyard. That sounds fine, right? No problem. Plant a vineyard. Uh, but Noah, Noah enjoys his vineyard a little too much. Right? So we find Noah's hammered and naked. Right? Hammered and naked. It's a problem. It's a significant problem. And his, uh, his youngest, his son, yeah, he drank from the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside the tent. Uh, by the way, Adam and Eve were uncovered when they were created. Was that a problem? No. Not a problem at all. Now uncovering yourself is a shameful thing, right? So Adam and Eve were given coverings after the fall. 
And now to uncover yourself like this in public is a shameful thing, right? And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid upon their shoulders and they walked backwards. They didn't want to see the spectacle. They didn't want to make fun of their dad. They didn't want to put him to shame like that. And their faces were turned away so they didn't see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke, he knew what his youngest son had done. Poem. So he said, cursed be Canaan. Now Ham was the guy that did it, but Canaan is Ham's son. So Noah's cursing the whole family. right? He's cursing that family line. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Uh, Canaan, that's all the, the nations that live in the promised land before Israel gets there. right? They're the bad guys in the story. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So who gets blessed? Like what family is the blessed family out of Shem, Ham, and Japheth here? It's Shem's family. Right? Look at, look at the story. So Canaan's family's cursed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Canaan will be Shem's servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. So the, the poem here now highlights the family of Shem. And all the gene- you'll wonder why all the genealogies in the Bible, because they're tracing family lines. And all the way back to Genesis 3, when the Lord promises that from Eve's family, someone will come and crush the head of the serpent. We, w- we want to know who that guy is, right? So we want to trace Eve's family. And we trace Eve's family all the way down, and then there's a flood, so we- now we've got to go through Noah's family. Well, which of Noah's sons should I trace here? Not Canaan's. There are bad guys. And if you keep reading the story, they're bad guys in the story. Japheth's family, nobody really cares about them. They kind of disappear pretty much. They're minor players in the story. It's Shem's family that we should pay attention to. The blessing is going to come from Shem's family. Okay? So that's uh, Genesis 9, 25 to 27. So that's how the poems work in Genesis 1 to 9. Narrative poetry that tells the main point, and then a little narrative epilogue at the end to wrap that story up. All right, dig it. That's episode number six of the Core Life Training Podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out. If you want to connect with us, if you want to ask a question or leave a comment, you can do a couple of things. You can email me at jeff at corelifetraining.org, or you could hit up the Core Life Training Facebook page. You can like it and leave your question or your comment there. I would, I would love to interact with you like that. It'd be great. Uh, If you want to be up to speed on the latest with the podcast and upcoming classes and events, you can join the email list at our website, corelifetraining.org. And if you're into the podcast, if you're digging it, uh, it'd be great if you would help us out by doing a couple things. First, would you leave us a review on iTunes? Anytime that you get uh, positive ratings and the more positive ratings you get, the easier it is for people to find you through search. So would you leave us a review? That would be awesome. And also, it would be super helpful if you would turn somebody else on to what we're doing here. If you're digging it, tell somebody else that you like it. Tell them they should give it a listen and subscribe as well. We'd really appreciate your help that way. All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible, and I will check you later. Later.